If you are staying in the room, I want to invite you to pull out a copy of God's Word. You can have sermon notes if you like. More importantly, make sure you have a Bible in front of you in some way. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, as Brandon just read. We're continuing our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we've said that this sermon, in this sermon, Jesus is showing us what life looks like in the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's what he's doing. He's giving us a vision of what we will be like and what life will be like when his kingdom comes to earth in, fuel, in, in full. So it is a future-oriented vision that he's giving us. And at the same time, he's showing us how we can do his will on earth as it is in heaven while we await that day. So it's, it's a future vision for what life's going to be like, but at the same time, it is something that we can embody right now. And today, we're actually going to begin to explore the first of six teachings from Jesus in which he takes an Old Testament command to a deeper level than was previously understood. We're going to start to hear week after week now, you'll get used to it, this refrain. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, initially, when I hear something like that, it, it frightens me because it sounds like that Jesus is just upping the ante and he's like, you think, you think that the expectation is for you not to murder someone? Well, I've got something even harder for you to, to obey. And that's really not the sense of this at all. If you remember from last week, I mentioned the purpose of this refrain. The purpose of this refrain is not that Jesus has come to abolish the law and then put something in its place, but instead... The purpose of this refrain is to give biblical examples of what a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees looks like. The key to understanding everything from verse 21 all the way to verse 48 is in Matthew 5.20. In Matthew 5.20, we see that the only way we can enter the kingdom of heaven is to possess a righteousness that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus takes these Old Testament teachings to show us how we can pursue this greater righteousness. Now in each of these passages, Jesus shows us how these Old Testament commands against outward actions actually highlight a deeper inner problem. There are thoughts and desires and attitudes beneath the surface of all of our visible outward actions. They are hidden down deep in the life of the heart. And when we say the heart, we're not talking about this thing that's pumping in, in, our, in our chest. We're talking about the seat of the person, the, the center of our being, the life of the heart, which is hidden to others. Jesus shows us here, it is not hidden to God. And in God's kingdom, the hidden life of the heart counts for just as much, maybe more, than our observable actions. There are some heart attitudes, some inner desires that, if left unchecked, don't miss what Jesus is saying here, don't miss the, the gravity of the situation. If these inner desires and heart attitudes, some of them, are left unchecked, they will prevent us from possessing a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. And what does that mean? They will prevent us from entering the kingdom of heaven. Again, a lot is on the line. Now, that's not how we're prone to think about our lives. We're prone to think that only our outward actions should be evaluated. If you want to take a moment and just take stock of your life, and if you're living faithfully to the Lord, what do you evaluate? You tend to think about the things that you do, the words that you speak, maybe some things that you wish you had done that you didn't do, but it's all outward. It's all visible. That's what the Pharisees did. I'm technically doing the right thing. I'm thinking about all the stuff that I've, I've been doing lately, and yes, that was good, and yes, that was good, and hey, in this situation, I mean, I probably, maybe I could have been better, but I did the best I could with what I had in front of me, and all you look at is what's on the surface. You've crossed all the T's, you've dotted all the I's. You see, Pharisaical righteousness, something we talked about last week, is unable 
to look any deeper than what's on the surface. It's unable. It won't do it. Over the next few weeks, Jesus is going to probe deep into our hearts to identify our deepest problem and our deepest need. He's going to find the poison that's within us. And he's going to make us aware of its presence and its power and its consequences. Now, the first sickness of our inner being that Jesus diagnoses for us is that of anger in the context of relationships. Anger. Who in this room cannot relate to that anger in the context of relationships? In this passage, what does Jesus do? He takes this Old Testament prohibition against murder, and he uses it to teach us the problem beneath the surface of murder and how these sources of relational breakdown eat away at our hearts. But then, praise God, he offers a prescription for relational healing. I want to be honest with you. Jesus' words here in these verses, this short little passage, have cut me very deeply. And I, I hope this is true every single week for me, but maybe more than most weeks, I can promise you that I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. And to be very blunt, I don't like what Jesus says here. I haven't liked it all week. It's been really, it's been really tough to prepare for this sermon. But I need it. I need to hear it. And if you feel that tension this morning, something you, Jesus confronts you in such a way that you, you hope he doesn't mean what he says and you want to explain him away and you want to justify yourself before him, and yet you know at the same time this is exactly what you need to hear. If you, if you feel that tension, I just want you to know you're not alone. I feel it too. And maybe, just maybe, you and I both will find some encouragement in the throes of this conviction. Two things I want to show you this morning from this passage. A problem and a solution. But the last thing I want this to become is a theoretical exercise. I want this to be personal, and I want this to be practical. So we're taking this theology of anger, according to Jesus, to the streets. And we're framing it within the context of relationships. So two points this morning. First, why relationships unravel? Why relationships unravel? And second, how relationships can be restored? The problem and the solution. Why relationships unravel and how they can be restored. First, why relationships unravel? Why do they? You see, Jesus, he's taking this, this prohibition against the extreme unraveling of relationships. Do not murder. It's probably uh, um, fair to say that if murder is committed, that relationship has unraveled. Would you say? You know, probably so. Um, yeah. He takes the extreme example of that, and he uses it to show us why relationships get to that place in the, in, in the first place. What leads a person to ultimately commit murder? But more, more than that, what is it about us that creates breakdowns and conflicts in our relationships. Let's listen to Jesus before we try to make sense of it. Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now let's break that down. First, we need to observe that Jesus does not abolish the law's teaching on murder. Instead, he clarifies it, and he deepens its true meaning. Here's the Old Testament command. You shall not murder. And here is the Old Testament consequence. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You see, Jesus is pointing us back to the Ten Commandments. This one is found in Exodus 20.13, Deuteronomy 5.13. But he's also making use of passages in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 17, various other passages that outline the consequences, the judgments 
of a violation of this command. If a person committed murder in, in Israel's uh, uh, community and was subsequently tried and found guilty, they would be sentenced to death. They were liable to judgment. But more than that, murderers would face judgment from God as well. This was a well-known command and consequence, very clear. And just to clarify things for you, when Jesus says, but I say to you, he isn't negating the command at all. He's not even just saying, hey, look, it still applies in a technical sense, but there's something far more important here. Murder is really, I mean, you know, obviously it's not good to do, but let's not focus on that. That's not, that's not what he's getting at at all. Jesus is 100% not saying murder is insignificant and that what really matters is the anger that leads to murder. Jesus isn't pitting murder against anger. And at the same time, Jesus is not equating murder and anger in such a way as to say there are no degrees in life at all. So to be mad at someone is the exact same thing as murdering them. That's, that's not what he's saying. Contrary to popular opinion, all sins are not created equal. There are degrees. But there is a deeper teaching here. But I say to you. And Jesus' deeper teaching takes three forms. We, we saw them here. We just read them. The first form, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The second form, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And the third form, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see the balance there? It's, it's uh, whoever says you fool, whoever insults, whoever is angry, similar. And then the consequences, similar. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Now before digging into each of these, I, I want to just observe the basic idea. Without abolishing the command against murder... Jesus is wanting us to see the true purpose of the command, that murder is something that begins in the heart long before it is carried out. And that's what Jesus says we need to deal with. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had a righteousness that just focused on managing the symptoms. You're angry with this person? Well, here's my counsel to you. Just don't kill them. Don't kill. The, the, law, the law says do not commit murder. So as long as you, you know, have a decent enough control on your anger that will not lead to murder, you are good. Now, maybe you haven't said that exactly, but I guarantee you've said something like it. How many of us have been so angry with someone and we're like, ooh, it was just the grace of God that kept me from hitting this person? You know, I showed them so much mercy by not just pushing them down the flood of stairs while I was walking right behind them there because you're so angry with them. I mean, how, how many of us, it was the spirit that just kept me from telling this person off today at work. Just the spirit, whoo, just held me back. It's the same kind of idea. Well, I mean, you're angry with them. That's okay. Just, just have some control over it and let it just sit. Don't, just don't kill them. Just, just, don't, just don't commit murder. Now that Jesus has come, that approach doesn't fly. In the kingdom of heaven, the purpose of the law is clarified. The command, you shall not murder, is really, don't allow your heart to succumb to the attitudes and desires that belittle another person to the point that you can snuff out their life. Don't commit murder in your heart. This is what leads to the unraveling of relationships in your life. And it comes in three levels. There's a top level, there's a, there's a middle level, and then there's this bottom level. You see, the top level is the one we can all see. And I'm going to call it evil. Because when we use the word evil, we just think of, of the worst atrocities in the history of the world. But the top level, an evil action is committed. We mention it first, it happens last. Jesus gives the example of murder. But this could be hateful, demeaning, and harsh words. That's evil too, by the way. It could be physical conflict. It could be emotional conflict. 
But this is usually some kind of face-to-face, and in our day, you know, maybe, maybe just, you know, through social media, um, in texts, phone calls, but usually it's a face-to-face outpouring of your anger and wrath onto another person. You blow up. We're calling it evil because that's what it is. That's the top level. That's what everyone sees. That, that's, that's why you get in trouble at work if you blow up. It's, it's what everybody sees. It's out in the open. But it's just the top level. Jesus probes deeper. There's something beneath that evil. He calls it anger. Jesus says being angry against someone you're in a relationship with will lead to the same consequence as the evil action you commit against them. And that's because that is where the real sickness lies. Before you sin against someone physically or emotionally, with your hands or with your words, you are angry with them in your heart. A relationship unravels long before evil actions are committed. We sin against others invisibly in our hearts long before we sin against them visibly. Anger is something we can easily justify because we feel that we can tame it in our hearts. And we can tame it in such a way that it won't lead to those evil actions. We can burn against another person, desire their failure, rejoice in their unhappiness, genuinely feel terrible things about them, and yet keep ourselves from doing anything outwardly against them and we think we're okay. And Jesus says this anger is not okay. And I have to confess that at different points in my life, I have harbored and protected and nourished and sadly enjoyed feeling angry at other people. And that's because anger is something that doesn't exist on that top level. It's beneath the surface. It exists at the center of our being. It attaches itself to our hearts. Anger is felt and it is embraced and it is fed in our hearts where no one else sees. And so we can become comfortable with it and no one else will know. This anger in our hearts slowly but surely starts to unravel the fabric of our relationships. And, and yes, we, we may be able to turn to other passages and talk about categories of righteous anger. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, hang on. Jesus was angry at different times in his ministry. That's great. When we get to those passages, we'll talk all about that. But I refuse to do that today. Because in this teaching, Jesus doesn't even categorize motivations for anger, let alone times when anger may be justified. He doesn't offer the caveat, now listen, I'm not talking about those times when people sin against you in egregious and horrendous ways. He's saying very generally, with a painfully broad stroke, that anger against those you're in a relationship with will lead not just to the breakdown of that relationship, but to judgment because it is a sickness that exists at the center of your being. More bad news. There's a deeper level. Top level, evil actions. Middle level, anger. That burning. But what sets the flame? How do you start to burn against another person? There's a bottom level, and we can just call it pride. I thought about calling it hatred, but I think pride... Gets, gets to the matter uh, more clearly. Anger leads to evil, but what leads to anger? Have you ever thought about that before? Anger comes upon you so quickly that you, you really don't, I don't, often think about what leads to it. Or if I'm answering that question, I'll often say something like, what do you mean? This, what this person just said to me. What this person did. What I just saw. And it's all stuff that's outside of you. And that's what led to anger in your heart. See, I'm guilty of playing that victim card. I've justified my anger against people because of what they did to me. And because what they did to me was truly wrong and truly evil. But the source of my anger, the source of your anger, at base level, is not 
the actions and words of someone else. The source of our anger is found deep within our hearts. Listen to what Jesus says. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In, in your Bibles, especially if you have an ESV, you probably have footnotes there that are, that are pointing down. Those are actually really important. The word that's translated insult literally says raka. It, it's, Jesus literally says here, whoever says raka to his brother will face judgment. Now that word raka, it gets a little more to the heart of the matter than insult. So, so raka is an insult of the mind. It, it's this dismissive arrogant air about you where you look at someone and say, you idiot, you moron, and you elevate yourself above them and, and you look down on them and you think them just idiotic, moronic. It's, it just insults their, their mind completely. The word translated fool, that's, that's a good translation there, it insults a person's heart or character. You fool you scoundrel, you terrible, awful person. Anger comes from this attitude of disdain and dismissiveness of another person. It's a sneering, prideful spirit that says raka. Raka, it's, it's like your heart rolling its eyes at another person, just, just looking down on them, human garbage. Jesus says what makes you resentful and bitter and angry is actually deeper than the anger itself. It's pride. It's dismissiveness. You experience raka when you are far more irritated by what this particular person is doing than if someone else was doing the exact same thing. Have you ever experienced that before? Where someone's doing something and it just gets on your nerves, but someone else could do it and it doesn't bother you at all? You're looking down on them. You're belittling them. You experience raka when you become hypercritical of everything a person says and does. They can't do anything right. They couldn't do anything right in your book. You're elevating yourself over them. You're, you're looking down on them. You're belittling them. You experience raka when you can't even, you, you couldn't force yourself. You'd rather be arrested than say something good about that person. Couldn't do it. Couldn't, couldn't force it out of you. You wouldn't even know how to say it. All of a sudden, you forget English. Like, you can't, you can't speak anymore. If someone asks you to say something good about this person, you, you can't. It's raka. You're, you're belittling them. You're looking down on them. You're sneering at them. That is at the heart of anger itself. And the worst of the worst, which is sadly common, you experience raka when your happiness is tied to their unhappiness. Isn't that a sick feeling? Someone that you look down on, Something bad happens to them and you just, maybe not outwardly, but your heart just grins a little bit. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome they're struggling right now? And again, it could be, again, Jesus doesn't categorize anything. It, this could be a person who has, has really harmed you. It could be a person who hasn't harmed you. That's not really what's, what's in view here. We could have all those discussions in a life group about the different ways this plays out. Jesus doesn't go there with the, with the categories. What he wants us to see is that our relationships unravel because of this attitude of anger, dismissiveness, and pride. And here's, here's the, the key to all of it. Those attitudes are the default mode of our hearts. That's what he wants you to see. There's a deep pride. He's diagnosing a, a serious sickness. There's a poison within us. That our hearts have a default response to other people in the world, and it is raka, it is anger, it is dismissiveness, it is pride. We default to that, especially if someone says something that offends us or frustrates us. The reason we get frustrated with people is because our default is to look down on them. And the reason we get angry with people so quickly is because our default response is to elevate ourselves above others. John Stott said this about, about this passage. Anger and insult are tantamount to murder in God's sight because on the heart level, they are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. 
That's why John would later write in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now the painful part of Jesus' diagnosis of this probing isn't actually, surprisingly, the warning about judgment. That's scary. That's not the painful part. The painful part is the truth that we can all identify with this problem. We're guilty. All of us. Who hasn't been angry with a brother? Who hasn't felt a dismissive and demeaning attitude toward a friend or fellow church member? If these desires and attitudes aren't dealt with, Jesus tells us what awaits. Judgment. Why? Not because now things have all of a sudden turned into a works-based righteousness, but because we actually require a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. You require a righteousness that can see beneath that top level and see these issues and deal with your heart on that level. Praise God there's a solution. There's a cure. But this is why our relationships unravel, because at our hearts, our default response is dismissiveness, pride, and anger. All right, that's why they unravel. Now, how can they be restored? How can relationships be restored? You see, the heart attitudes of anger and hatred, they are what breaks down all relationships. If you want to wonder why you're in conflict with someone else, Jesus has just just told you. Now, it makes sense then, logically, if the problem is at this deeper heart level, the solution must also be at this deeper heart level. But then Jesus surprises us, and he doesn't go there immediately. And notice what he does. Jesus says that reconciliation, something that actually happens visibly, something that's, that's an outward action, that that is the path for relationships to be restored, Reconciliation is Jesus' prescription to anger. Am I the only one that's a little surprised by that, taken off guard? That Jesus says, okay, anger is a problem. Yeah, Jesus, I see it. I see it. What can I do to get rid of it? Go be reconciled. It's surprising, but it also makes sense. Kingdom righteousness, a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees, Responds to anger with reconciliation. And reconciliation is anger's cure. Because in the process of reconciliation, you will be doing things that puts out the fire of anger in your heart. The only way to be reconciled is to deal with the anger. His practical solution to the problem of anger is given through two illustrations. Two illustrations. Starting in verse 23. Look at it with me. Jesus says, so. Another translation may have the word therefore, which is clearly a connection, a, uh, an answer to the problem here. Because you have this deep heart problem, raka, anger, therefore, here's what you need to do. He tells a story. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then he gives a second illustration. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So when, not if, not if, when, you find yourself in a relationship that has begun to unravel because of anger in your heart. These illustrations teach us how to pursue reconciliation. So I want to give you four things in in pairs. Two principles for reconciliation and then two practices for reconciliation. Two principles. Principle number one. You must resolve to reconcile any relationship that is broken. Here's here's what I mean by that. Our sinful nature defaults to anger and destruction. That's, That's the default of our sinful nature. 
Our new nature in Christ in the kingdom defaults to reconciliation and healing. That, that has to be our new approach to relationships in our lives. Not to justify this default re- response and reaction and become just angry and bitter against this person. Feel like it's okay because we're not committing evil actions against them. That, that's the old way. In Christ now, in his kingdom, we default to a new way. When we're at conflict, we pursue reconciliation and healing. The culture of Jesus' kingdom demands that while we await his return, we seek to make peace wherever possible and with whomever we are in conflict. Now, I, I can't tell you how badly I just want to give you a bunch of caveats about times when making peace isn't possible, but that really defeats the purpose of what I'm trying to say here. I'm calling each of us to develop an impulse of the heart that desires peace, that values relationships, and that strives for healing. Of course, in the playing out of these events, it depends on so many factors whether or not a relationship actually ends up being reconciled. We know that. But what I'm talking about is, as far as you're concerned, what is your motive What is your goal when conflict arises, when anger arises in your heart? And I'm telling you that the first principle of reconciliation is you have to resolve in your heart to desire and pursue reconciliation with any relationship that is broken. There's a second principle. And the second principle, before we get into how, how to reconcile, is we must pursue reconciliation quickly. And I don't like this, by the way. This is one of the parts of it I just, I didn't like. Um, In his first illustration, I promise you, you probably are misunderstanding it. There's a a high likelihood that you're misunderstanding his illustration. Because what you're prone to do is, sorry, probably what the Pharisees were prone to do when they heard stuff like this from Jesus. And they think to themselves, oh, well, man, I I guess the next time I go to worship... I need to sit there and think if somebody has something against me, and then I need to leave it, and then I need to go. And we think about that. Or, or you think about, you know, before, you know, church next Sunday, like, I, I can't even go to church anymore until I know that everybody that has something against me, that we've resolved that, and then you're not at church for the next six months because every single week you're, you're trying to. And look, that might be a wonderful thing to do, and it may be something that you need to do. And that's not a bad way to apply this passage. But that's not what he's getting at. He's not teaching them a lesson about how they're supposed to approach you know, the temple when they come to worship. That's not what it's about. He's highlighting the urgency and the importance and the priority of reconciliation. He gives this ridiculous situation. You have a worshiper who, by the way, not everyone lived in Jerusalem. And by the way, there was one altar, one altar, not a hundred churches within, you know, four miles. There, there, one altar, one temple, And so if you're a worshiper and you don't live in Jerusalem and you're going to the temple to bring your offering, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of preparation at home, and then you you have to journey. You take this long journey, this extended journey to make it to Jerusalem, and you make it to the temple. And Jesus is saying, if you've gone through all that trouble, and then you get right to the point where you're about to offer your gift, and then the thought enters your mind, someone has something against me. And again, in this situation, you are the person who has, whether justifiably or not, you have offended someone. You are the offender. And so you're here, and you remember that. Someone has something against me. You leave your offering right there. And you immediately go. And he says, first, be reconciled to them. Listen. What if you go to all the trouble to get to the temple with your offering and then have a side thought that a relationship is broken? Jesus says to do the ridiculous thing. Leave your gift at the altar. That's how urgent and that's how important reconciliation is. In this illustration, making peace with another person takes priority over offering worship to God. Why? Because what does the Lord desire? He desires kingdom righteousness. He desires a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees would never, never do that. Because all they see is the top level. Kingdom righteousness sees beneath the surface and sees this issue of anger 
and brokenness and, and, and dismissiveness that's in the heart. And the answer to that in the context of a relationship is to leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. So we pursue reconciliation quickly. Once we recognize that there is a, break, a breakdown in a relationship, we start the process of reconciling. And again, we're going to get into what that looks like here in a second. But there's a second illustration. In the second illustration, he, he pretty much makes the same point. He paints a picture of two people in dispute. And they're on their way to court. You've been sued by someone. But instead of battling it out in a courtroom, he says, settle the dispute with your accuser. But when? While you're walking to court with him. You're on your way to court. You, you go to them and you settle this dispute. And how do you settle it? He says, Jesus, or Jesus says to settle it quickly. Again, he's emphasizing the urgency of reconciliation. Don't let the conflict drag out. If someone has accused you of something, come to terms with them quickly. All right, so those are the two principles. Pursue it quickly and resolve to do it. Have a desire for peace in your heart. Now we can get to the nitty-gritty. Two practices for reconciliation. How do you do it? What's required? What do you need? What do you need in your tool bag in order to actually make peace, in order to actually be reconciled with someone in a broken relationship? A relationship has unraveled. How do we restore it? I promise you it's impossible without these two things. Repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Reconciliation is the cure to the inner heart problems of anger and pride because reconciliation requires our hearts to change. And if you've ever felt like you have repented and you have forgiven, but your heart hasn't changed, you have not repented and you have not forgiven. Because at the base level of our hearts, change has to happen in order to repent and in order to forgive. Let's begin with repentance. If you want to reconcile a relationship that has unraveled, you must repent. It doesn't work any other way in a marriage, in a friendship, with, in any relationship you find yourself in, with your children, children with your parents. The only way to reconcile a relationship that's unraveled is to repent. Now, re repentance involves a few things. And hear me clearly on this one. Repentance involves taking full responsibility for what you have done with no excuses given at all. You can't just go, so sorry that what I said hurt you. My bad. That one's, that one's on me. Just not clear and, you know, you just kind of want things to end. You're like, oh, this is just, oh, I hate it. I hate that we just are, you know, in this uncomfortable space and we can't get along. I'm sorry, okay? No. Repentance takes full responsibility for what you have done. And guess what that means sometimes? Sometimes that means you, you may be going into a relationship like, man, what's wrong with us? This is, this is frayed. It's, it's breaking down. I, I don't understand where it is. And they're upset with you. And they have a grudge against you because of something you've done. And you're sitting there thinking, I haven't done anything wrong. I can't repent unless I've done something wrong. I'm not just going to say sorry. Guess what? Your job is ask them. You take full responsibility. I have nothing to take responsibility for. Make sure. Ask. What have I done? And they tell you. And that's where it gets really tricky. We're trying to repent, but we get hung up, and we're like, well, that's your perspective. You think I've done something wrong. I actually haven't done anything wrong, and I am a very faithful legalist, and I am not going to ever repent for something that I have not done wrong. I haven't. I do a lot of things wrong, not in this situation, nothing wrong. Uh, this, is, this is where I have I've learned and tried to adopt. I, I don't do this perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but I try to do this. Um, something that, that we call the 80-20 rule. Um, the 80-20 rule. And I learned this from Tim Keller. And by the way, Tim Keller uh, has a new book out. Uh, it's called Forgive on Forgiveness. He's one of my favorite authors in, in, on the topic of forgiveness. Pick that up. It's, it's so, so good. Um, but the 80-20 rule from Tim Keller. Tim Keller says, even if the other person is 80% of the problem, 
you bring your 20% to the table. And you admit your 20%. And you make no excuses for it. Here's what I've done wrong. Here's what I wish I'd done differently. I'm sorry. And the next part, will you forgive me? We'll get to it. But 80-20. In your mind, it might be 95-5. 99-1 in your mind. You bring your 1%. You bring your 5%. You lay it on the table, and you take full responsibility for it. This is what repentance requires. But it also involves something that's just hard to do, asking for forgiveness. It's almost easier to repent and say I'm sorry than to ask for forgiveness. I don't know why. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But it's hard to, to act. You have to humble yourself. To, to admit to someone, I need you to forgive me. But this is how relationships are repaired. This is how they are uh, restored and reconciled. True repentance goes like this. I know I've wounded you. And I know that you have every right to hold it against me. So we don't like to get to that place. But repentance and forgiveness don't mean anything unless we can get there. I know that you have every right to hold it against me and to repay me for what I have done. So I'm in need of your forgiveness. You do, you do realize that that's what forgiveness is, right? Forgiveness is there is a person who has a right to demand repayment. And they forgive it. They don't demand the repayment. We'll get to that in a second. But in repentance, we ask for forgiveness. And then one more thing, repentance involves offering to make changes. Sometimes you, you need to make things right. Often, when you are the one repenting in a situation, you need to do something to make things right. Repentance always means change. Repentance always tries to make things right. So one practice that you have to have in your tool bag if you're going to reconcile relationships that will, not if, or not maybe, be broken. You need to repent. Second, you need to forgive. Repentance and forgiveness. Now, forgiving another person's wrongs against you is the ultimate secret to reconciliation. It's almost the same thing. It's not quite the same thing as reconciliation. But when you forgive someone, it's hard for reconciliation to not happen. Often, when reconciliation doesn't happen, it goes like this. A person is sorrowful and repentant, and another person won't forgive. Forgiveness isn't the ultimate secret. It's, it's forgiveness. Or, or, yeah, repentance isn't. Forgiveness is. Forgiveness requires you to do a couple things. And the first one I draw from Keller. Forgiveness requires you to give up the right to seek repayment. You have the right you have the right to seek repayment, and you give it up. When someone wrongs you, when they wrong you, you feel emptied of something. You feel robbed of, of whatever it is. And the natural response is to give pain back, to repay. And, and Jesus talks about retaliation. We're not going to get into that right now. We'll have a whole sermon on that. But to forgive is to release this right, to resist this impulse, to take the loss, to absorb the pain, and refuse to pay it back. And second, forgiveness requires us to let go of offenses. Now, this aspect of forgiveness is not mentioned that much because it can be horribly abused. And one of the worst things you can say to someone is, just get over it. Just let it go. Why can't you just let that go? But in truth, one part of forgiveness is letting some offenses go. Now, people who have sinned against you, they can use this to gaslight you and say things like, are you still upset about this? I said I'm sorry. You're, you're, why, would you, why would you be upset about this? Just let it go. Now you're the problem. Let it go. Get over it. Let's get back to business as usual. And a uh, quick warning. If you are tempted to use Jesus' illustration, 
to gaslight someone into a twisted and forced version of reconciliation just so things can be okay. Your righteousness is no better than the scribes and Pharisees. And you need to repent now. But apart from that scenario, true forgiveness does require you to model Jesus' expiation of our sins. See, that the big word, simple meaning, through the death of Jesus on the cross, he has canceled our debt of sin against him. How did he do that? By absorbing the sting of sin. He absorbed it all. He, he took the wrath of God. He absorbed the guilt and penalty for our sin and canceled our debt of sin against him. When relationships have unraveled, the path to reconciliation requires us to do a similar thing. When a brother or sister or friend repents, we cancel the debt of their sin against us. We seek no repayment, and we let the offenses go. One last thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness requires us to make promises in our heart to refuse to hold future grudges. We promise not to oppose them to their face. We promise in our hearts not to oppose them to others. We promise not to oppose them in our hearts. And that leads to the final word about repentance and forgiveness. They must begin in your heart. Repentance and forgiveness have to begin in your heart before they are extended to another person. The order of repentance is in, then out. And the order of forgiveness is in, then out. We repent in our hearts. We literally have a change of heart. Then we express it. Simple sorry just doesn't cut it. What? I did it. Right? I did it. I said sorry. No, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it. Forgiveness begins in our heart. Repentance begins in our heart. We forgive in our hearts long before we say the words, I forgive you. That's where it has to begin. You have to genuinely want to cancel the debt of someone's sin against you before you can genuinely forgive them. And the same is true of repentance. Now, I hope that you see here that kingdom righteousness requires us to pursue reconciliation when our relationships unravel. And I hope you see that in the pursuit of reconciliation, your heart will start to change and move away from anger and away from pride and toward love and peace. But we, we, can't, we can't be fooled here either. Repentance and forgiveness... Reconciliation, it's insanely difficult. Insanely difficult. And there, there are different situations that, all situations, all relationships that are broken, they're not equal. There are different things that are required. Sometimes we require mediation. Uh, some of these situations are simple. Some of them are really complex. Some of them are seated with deep and in years of pain and abuse. So, you know, I don't pretend to, to give you a formula that you can just start to apply across every broken relationship you have and then see a ton of success. It's going to be really hard to pursue these things. And you're not going to want to do it. Never will you more clearly feel and see the tension between the kingdom and this fallen world than as it relates to reconciliation. But I want to challenge you. What's the alternative? That's what hit me like a ton of bricks this week. What's the alternative? You don't want to pursue reconciliation? You want to add all these... Fine, fine. What's the alternative? Because anger exists in your heart and you're going to be angry at someone. And your relationships are going to be broken in some way and to some degree. What's the alternative? Here's the alternative. When you do evil against someone and you don't repent, or when evil is done to you and you don't forgive, guess who wins in that scenario? Evil. The evil wins. 
The anger wins. You don't win, they don't win, the anger wins. Because then it attaches itself to your heart and it makes you more bitter and more angry beyond the situation. Bitterness and anger and disdain and dismissiveness will take up camp in your heart. And then the judgment. That's the alternative. But when reconciliation is your pursuit and repentance and forgiveness are your response to anger, then love, humility, and grace will fill your heart and you will start to to present to others a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now listen, I'm sure, I'm sure across this room, you have a relationship in your life that is broken that needs to be reconciled. And I'm sure, I hope, you're thinking about that and thinking about what you can do. And it may just begin with some inner reflection. And and, and you wonder, why don't I want that? And you need to work that out first. Remember, it, reconciliation, in, then, out. Or maybe you need to, to set up a phone call with someone. Maybe you need to have a meeting with someone. Because a relationship that you're in, maybe, maybe tonight you need to have a conversation with your spouse. Whatever it is, we need something more than just a formula. That's the bedrock of our hope. Because anger cannot be eradicated through repentance and forgiveness. Those are responses to anger. Those are kingdom impulses, responses. How is it eradicated? We need Jesus. One author said this week, Jesus himself refused to go the way of anger. Instead, he took the anger of his enemies onto himself and died under its load. And from that point on, reconciliation is not simply an ideal we might strive for. It is an achievement, an accomplishment of Jesus, which we in turn must now embody. Anger is overcome through reconciliation only when you know that you are a sinner saved by grace. And only when you know that if God held any of your sins against you, you would be lost forever. This vertical reconciliation, peace with God, leads to horizontal reconciliation, peace with others. The more you understand the gospel, the less angry you'll be with people. And the more angry you are with people, the less you show you understand the gospel. So as we strive to live on earth as it is in heaven, by combating our anger with reconciliation, let's rely on the power of the Spirit, let's rely on the reality of God's grace, and let's gaze into the glory and the wonder of the peace that God has made with us. You are at peace with a God against you whom you have sinned. And he does not turn his anger and his wrath against you. He poured out his wrath on his son who stood in your place. And now you have peace with God through the shed blood of his son.